Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. Generative AI technology, it's great to give you some options, but it's not an answer. It's not a recommendation engine. Your judgment matters. That's Lorena Yee, McKinsey Senior Partner and Chair of our Technology Council, talking about the power and limitations of generative AI. Lorena joins me, Brian, and Bill today to discuss how Gen AI is influencing human resources now and into the future. Okay, Lorena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And Bill and Brian, welcome back. It's great to see you as always. It's great to be back. Great to be back. There has been so much discussion and buzz in recent months about generative AI and tools like ChatGPT, and so many folks seem to be ricocheting between wonder at the power and the potential of these tools, and then, of course, fear about the inherent risks. So let's start, Lorena, with some context. You're the chair of McKinsey's Technology Council. You're one of our leading experts in the tech space. What is different about Gen AI and what's behind its disruptive potential? Thanks, Lucia. That's a great question. There are a couple of things that stand out about generative AI. The first is that we had a moment we won't forget, and that was November 2022 when OpenAI released ChatGPT 3.5. And in five days, there were a million users. So the speed of adoption was unlike anything we've seen. But for me, what was most profound about that moment was that anyone of any age, any education level, any country could go on to GPT, query a question or two, and find something practical, or maybe just find something fun. Since then, we've seen a lot of advancement in the technology, and it's only been a couple of months. A second thing that's super interesting about this is because you don't need to be a computer scientist to leverage the technology. It is something that can be used in all types of jobs. OpenAI's research estimates that 80% of jobs can incorporate generative AI technology and capabilities into activities that happen today in work. If you just take that 80% from OpenAI, that is not replacement of jobs. That's actually blending into the workflow of work that's done. That is a profound impact on talent and on jobs. And what we're seeing is even if companies have policies that say you can't use chat GPT. You can't go outside. You know, we see example after example after example of long lists of people that are going and violating those policies and going outside of the firewall, you know, using chat GPT. In some ways, the genie is out of the bottle. And so the idea that you can put it back in, um, that's probably not the best strategy. Lean forward and figure out how to use it in a way that's productive, in a way that's safe, This just feels so novel and so lightning fast. Why don't you give us an explanation of what Gen AI is and what large language models are? So we are working from a common definition of those terms. So generative AI is a technology that prompts the next best answer. We all know the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs. One of the simple things that generative AI does is it trains itself that if it heard it's raining cats, that dog is the next best response. 
a lot of people have used ChatGPT to summarize information, to draft a response to something, kind of pulling together an enormous amount of public data from Wikipedia to Reddit, et cetera. But there's also amazing imaging. I might want a song, audio, video, code. Code is a huge one. So Lucia, it's amazing the range of things that generative AI can do in the world, and it's just getting started. And Lorena, can I can I just pop in there with an example? Of course. Yes. So I asked ChatGPT about myself, and it accurately reported that I do a lot of work on talent. It inaccurately reported that I went to Cornell. Hmm. Because with my background, it assumed that Cornell was the next best answer versus the University of Virginia, where I did go. And so I thought it was very interesting that in a practical way, you do see not necessarily what's right, but what is logical. And in some ways, that emulates how we think as well. And I'm not suggesting that it's thinking the way humans do, but in many ways, we use shortcuts and cues to make assumptions. And so that is kind of why people say, gosh, it feels really clever. But to your point, it's not 100% accurate. And they have a great term for that, Brian. It can hallucinate. Now, underneath that are these large language models. And that's all the data that is pulled together um, and trained in order to be able to support that application and interface that you receive. Okay, so now let's turn to what these kinds of gen AI capabilities mean for talent in particular. Do you expect Gen AI to reshape or to alter the recruiting process in any meaningful way? I think it'll reshape it in two meaningful ways. The first is helping managers write better job recs. The generative technology that can actually pull on the skills that are actually required to be successful in the job. It's not to say a manager doesn't need to check it at the end. They will. They'll need to be that human in the loop to make sure that that job rec is a good one but it can dramatically improve the speed and quality of job recs. The other application recruiting, I think, is the candidate personalization. Right now, if you're an organization that has tens of thousands of applicants, you may or may not have super customized ways of reaching out to the people that have applied. And with generative AI, you can include much more personalization about the candidate, the job, what other jobs may be available if there's a reason why the applicant isn't a fit. All of those things are made immensely easier and faster through Gen AI. So Bill, with your background in the actual science of what it takes to understand individuals and understand performance, what do you see as some of the challenges on using Gen AI or AI in general in the talent acquisition side? I mean, the best application is in large skill pools where it's reasonably well-known jobs. You actually do need a more productive and efficient way to navigate all the profiles coming through. Where I think it gets a little anxious is anytime it's novel, a new role or like in U.S. law, you know, a job changed more than like 25 or 33 percent. You have to go back and revalidate in some cases the criterion by which you would judge people in or out of the pool. I do think you should do the upstream work to make sure you're clear on that before you try to apply it to bigger pools, right? You wouldn't want to overreach. The challenge for sure under validating something is you need a performance criterion to regress against and say, what's the difference? Which in some cases then goes into how do you get that out of the lake without jumping into people's own proprietary performance data, right? And say, okay, well, we're only going to use ours as the employer. Well, okay, that's a challenge. That only means you have people you hired. And to validate, you have to look at the people you didn't hire. 
So it doesn't mean it can't be used. It just means there's probably a little bit more front-end work on the novel jobs and a wide-open opportunity for the big skill pools. We talk a lot about having over-indexed on credentials and under-indexed on skills in the recruiting process. Does Gen AI have a role in accelerating that shift from credentials like college degrees to the skills that candidates are actually capable of contributing the workplace? So I'm optimistic it can. One thing that technology does extremely well is tagging. So the ability to tag unstructured data for words. And there's a lot of businesses who are thinking about applying that to e-commerce, to uh, different types of retail experiences. But if you think about it, you could also apply it to talent acquisition or looking for capabilities because now I don't need to have the credential or a degree, I could maybe look for keywords in terms of capabilities and skills. You know, on social media, how do people talk about certain capabilities? And you may find that they're better words to associate who has that skill. And in a world where maybe you want to be able to find people for jobs that don't have PhDs, who don't have college degrees, but have experience, they've learned amazing things on the job. I'm optimistic that this could give more credit and open more doors for folks like that. It just feels to me like this is an interesting trade-off in that in that business world, by the way. They like their proprietary data sets. They like their proprietary grouping of profiles. And the real power might be how much can you get in public domain, right, until you start bumping up against paywalls. Long ago when LinkedIn was bought, the APIs got limited to job titles, not necessarily all the spec that was underneath it. So there is power in these pools in particular of profiles of jobs, because then you can go to task and skills. And I'd imagine there's going to be a race here towards figuring out how we can piece these things together to form the ontological cloud, if you will, of, you Mm -hmm. know, these 17 things describe this skill. Because it really is about skills and not credentials. That's why it used to be just your job titles and your degrees, because that's all anybody was using. When we go below that, we get many, many, many more people in the funnel. So it's great for sourcing. You can also think about this as aiding a skill-based transition, not just from the employer perspective, but from the candidate or employee perspective. Is in the current world, if you're somebody that may have some of the skills, but don't have a very clear view of what your career opportunities might be, you are highly dependent on a manager or somebody taking an interest in you and helping to navigate you to what some quote-unquote non-traditional paths could be. But in a world of generative AI, you could actually have a conversation with a very intelligent chatbot that says, hey, here are my skills and experiences. What jobs could be open to me? And it could come back and say, well, most people with your skill profile do these things, but some do A, B, C, and C might be encoding, which might be significantly different from somebody currently working in customer service. And then the person could say, well, tell me what the jobs encoding would be. And generative AI could not just pull a job description for a coder that is geared towards an IT person, but can translate it to a world where I understand. And then I could say, okay, this is great. I'm interested. What learning experiences do I need? And Gen AI could aggregate and tell you what learning experiences. So for somebody who has the innate ability, but doesn't have the visibility, Gen AI can really help illuminate a range of career paths and actually start helping people understand how to get there. Mm-hmm. The great attrition stuff is so clear on the need for being able to understand what your development opportunities are and what mobility is, real flexibility and career pathing. Mm -hmm. 
imagine I am 10 years into my career. And to your point, Bill, at great attrition, I'm just sort of feeling like a little stuck. What if I had kind of a professional development assistant, an AI assistant that helps me think through what type of job should I seek? You know, what are the types of roles within my company? How do I think about it? And what classes would I take? You know, how would I, as opposed to waiting for someone to reskill me, <laughs> which sounds awful, how do I take initiative in my career 10 years in to build a set of skill sets and understand the range of jobs that are available for my capabilities? That would be so cool. You know, depending on the regulatory environment you're in, you're not allowed to make any selection decision without a human being involved. Right. And particularly, you know, in the EU. And so it's a nice way of augmenting the humans, but not cutting the decision making out. Whereas on the employee side, it's like transparency galore. Right. You can actually see how close you are to a lot of things. I love it for the employee experience part. I get anxious about the selection part just because we're still not sure about what's in the lake and how good they are at prompting. It's great to give you some options, but it's not an answer. It's not a recommendation engine. Your judgment matters. How else might Gen AI affect the employee experience, as Bill just mentioned? One of the things that we're seeing is that ChatGPT and Gen AI more broadly can be particularly good at getting new workers up to speed more quickly. Hmm. There's uh, interesting research that Eric Brynjolfsson at Stanford, along with others from MIT, have recently come out with uh, that actually looked in call center workers. And what they found is that the Gen AI functionality wasn't all that helpful for the most experienced reps. Where it was incredibly helpful was the new folks, because they were able to get that institutional knowledge much more quickly. It was at their fingertips. They could ask a question and get the answer. So the productivity of new folks you know, was dramatically higher. So, Lucia, can I share with you one of my personal favorite uses for Gen AI and the people front? Please do. Please do. Performance reviews. And so, hear me out. What I don't want is Gen AI actually generating somebody's performance review. I think that needs the human in the loop, needs the human judgment, needs the empathy. But let me take what I do as a McKinsey evaluator. I get written feedback from 15 to 20 individuals. They enter it into a digital system. I've got long-form feedback. I look at upward feedback scores that include written commentary as well as specific number-based scores. I look at numbers, like how often were these people actually deployed on engagements? I look at compliance-related things. Did they turn in their stuff on time? A whole range of things. For me as an evaluator, getting to a first draft is an incredibly arduous process. And it's one that I take pride in. I take pride in the time and the thoughtfulness. But what if I could hit a button and I had a draft? Mm -hmm. So when I have each of the in-person conversations or Zoom conversations with the 15 people that know the person I'm evaluating the most, what if I had a draft I was already working off of? It's not a replacement for going through and the other things, but gosh, that initial synthesis would help me get more quickly to what I really need to probe on for that person's development, what I really needed to probe on for them to grow. And so I'm excited about that case because it eliminates a lot of work for me. At first, many people would think I'd never want Gen AI touching anywhere near performance, anywhere near performance reviews. But I actually think if we think of this as a tool, as a productivity aid, as something that helps us be even better, it's tremendously exciting. 
Now let's talk about the person he's evaluating, the employee. So the employee gets their feedback and Brian probably wrote it pretty clearly and he delivered it with empathy. So I'm feeling, okay, I've got some strengths and I've got some development needs. But what if I, as the employee, can query and use and figure out who are five success models with my strengths and weaknesses and what have they gone on to do? How can I visualize my career development? How can I continue to work on it? Can I also have an assistant that helps me map my professional development so that when we talk a year from now, I've really nailed some of the things I'm working on in a practical way, but I've also lifted my aspirations. Instead of Brian having to introduce me to Bill, who's my future role model, I realize that I'm the makings of a Bill Shaniger. (laughs) And I I can see that. I can be inspired by that. So I think there's a lot in there that actually enhances what we've been trying to do so laboriously for years. How do you feel about a whole lot less hair, Irina? <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not willing to shave my head All to right. go there. All right. <laughs> Brian said one word that I was waiting for, and he said synthesis. And I would say summary. You know, we talk about putting the manager back in performance management. It's the weekly chats. Every time you talk to somebody about something good, something bad, log it away so that at the end of the quarter or the end of the year, it's more of an aggregation and synthesis, and it's not a surprise to anyone. But that requires regular entry. And so while I love what you are describing, it's not the tech that does that. It's the people committing to the common uh, data capture and the common approaches that, that enable it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Your point's well taken. It's not synthesis because that is what the human does, but it's also a step more than summary. Yeah. And as an evaluator, then I apply my human judgment. Ah, I actually don't think that's right, but that's something for me to probe on. I wouldn't have connected it. The normative data is nice, right? When we get our sponsorship and mentorship data and we see like, okay, where are we at? And how does that compare to like other partners in this region or whatever? If you don't have a reference point, how would you know what good actually is? But when you get the normative data, you can start getting some guidance. I like all of that. And that's all enabled by huge amounts of data, right? If this enables a more robust and wholesome view of what performance is actually occurring, I'll tell you, it makes it a whole lot easier to have a difficult performance conversation. We need to put the manager back to performance management, but can we make it easier on the manager so they can spend the time scribbling out a schedule or managing versus knitting together 15 data points? We've talked a lot about the opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about some of those risks, bias. Obviously, AI learns based on historical data and historical patterns of data are going to reflect historical biases. So what is the risk now that by relying on these gen AI driven tools, we are inadvertently propagating these inherited biases? And how do you manage for that? So certainly one of the risks is that as generative AI is today, it can amplify bias. So let's use an example back to an earlier part of the conversation we were having about the importance of how you ask questions, which is actually the human side of this. So if I'm looking for recruiting and I describe different qualifications, and I'm looking at urban centers of talent, and I say that basketball captains are something that I'd like to look for, or if I say lacrosse captains is something that I'd like to look for. You know, those are team sports and captains and leadership. Well, if you look at the demographic of who plays basketball in urban cities versus who plays lacrosse, it's actually very different. And so you could amplify, perhaps if you ask lacrosse, a typically more white 
set of young male leaders. Whereas if you said basketball, you might actually find more African-Americans. You might find more Latinos. That, just even the selection of the sports, that's a judgment or a thing that we're doing in the questioning. And if we left it to one sport, as opposed to actually pulsing a couple of different sports, like softball, where you see women, you might actually amplify some bias in asking the AI to help source candidates for you or help produce resumes. So I think the power of the question is on us as the humans. There's one thing that's not on that list that I think is particularly relevant for our audience here on McKinsey Talks Talent, and that's the risk of us all being less interesting. If you are somebody in a creative field and you leverage Gen AI and you're able to get your output to 12 articles in a week from six, you're spending less time per article, and that's what you may need to get it for publication ready, but you're not spending as much time in the shower, on the run, you know, in the car, thinking about the articles. If you're a lawyer and Gen AI has now enabled you to get a lot of the routine filings, you're going from four to eight, you are going to make sure that it's technically correct and that it's fine, but you may not necessarily have as much time as you did before to really have that creative thinking. I mean, we know that the most creative thoughts come from downtime, come from time when you're doing something else and letting your mind wander. If you are now doubling or tripling the amount of matters that you have that you could be particularly creative on, Sure, some of them you're going to be creative, but for a number, it's going to be fine, but less interesting. So to me, this risk of being less interesting is an important one and one that we may not have fully thought through in all of our other risk conversations. I am personally now worried that I will be less interesting (laughs) after this talk. (laughs) But what does this mean if you are a leader thinking about this? Because Uh, you certainly don't want your workforce to be less interesting at the end. There are a lot of risks. And so oftentimes people had a workflow where they would think about a technology, think about the business ROI, and then sequentially at the end, they would be like, are there any risks that we should worry about? I would strongly recommend that you actually think about risk upfront in the design. So that's one thing. The other thing is I think there's real opportunity for what we typically call change management. And I have a lot of clients who roll their eyes when I use the term change management. But the change management piece here is if you don't actually think through how does that job look different? How does the workflow, how does the collaboration model look different? You're not necessarily directing that additional time towards something that's more value add. Then you have to say, how do we as humans use it? And how does that change you know, what my five day a week looks like? And what my nine to five looks like. I think it raises the bar for problem solving and role clarity. Absolutely. So the bigger, I think the bigger thing to call out here is that three of us have spent this time thinking about all the positive intentions and the ways we can use this for good. And you would bet that there are three other people thinking about the same neutral technology and saying, how can I use this for harm? Traditionally, this is why government regulation and government policy and standards or international standards play a fundamental role in our society. I don't think you can completely leave it to the private sector to be able to self-regulate. So among folks who have fears about chat GPT, a big one is that these kinds of tools will eliminate their job or, you know, potentially worse, become their boss. What do you think 
folks can do now to prepare for the changes that are not only to come, but are already underway? So I would try to make it as easy for them to learn and play than it would be to try to resist. I mean, empathy is a natural thing and you want to acknowledge the fear that comes with it, but I don't think we should allow it to become beholden to that fear. Humans figuring out how to use that technology to make themselves better and faster and get scale on their impact is a good choice. Mm-hmm. And assuming HR becomes increasingly automated, as we've been describing, and talent processes become increasingly automated, how can leaders ensure that Gen AI doesn't get in the way of what Brian was calling the human in the loop? So I think HR leaders, people leaders, have a huge role to play in two ways. One is to modernize and leapfrog their own talent capabilities within their functions. And secondly, if 80% of their workforce is shifting, they play a huge role in how that happens in their companies, how it affects employees, how do we actually find the goodness in this? Um, So I think they have a huge voice in the table. And it's a tremendous opportunity for HR to think about how they can actually use this technology to increase the access to opportunity for huge swaths of their workforce to get managers more consistently up to the level of performance that HR leaders have always wanted them to be, and then spend time not necessarily just cleaning up things on the back end when things go wrong or working on administrative tasks, but spending more time on the more strategic elements of how are we going to transition to this world of work. You know, in an era when we see the occurrence of layoffs and restructurings and downsizings, I would be hopeful that the HR folks view this as an opportunity to routinize, get rid of work they don't have to do, period. But for what they do have to do, find a way to use this to get better answers faster and increasing time on talent. Mm-hmm. Guys, great discussion. Lorena, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you thanks, for joining. Sorry. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well. <laughs>